I love that hymn. Recently, when Queen Elizabeth was brought to Westminster to lie in state before her state funeral, that was one of the hymns that she chose to be sung as she, as she was brought in in her casket uh, with, with the honor guard and all of the pomp and circumstances uh, that surround that. And you listen to the, the words of that first line. You know, there's a lot going on in that moment. And, but sweeter still to rest in His presence. What a great line. What a great prayer of our heart that hymn helps us to put voice to. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 5 this morning as we look at an authoritative warning from Jesus. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 5, we'll read down through verse 15. And a man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been sick a long time, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his mat and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man that said to you, Pick up your mat and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and disclosed to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Father, help us to hear the authoritative warning now from the Word of God that you have spoken, upon which we stake our hope and our lives. Lord Jesus, speak clearly to us in Your Word now this morning by Your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to look around very long or very hard to know that we live in a world that's completely filled with fear. We live in an anxious time. We live in an anxious world. Our own hearts, even as believers, are tempted, aren't they? many points and in many ways to fear. The cruel reality of fear is this, that fear is an unlimited reality in a fallen world. There's no end of things to fear. As soon as one thing is resolved or remedied and and that thing seems to have blown over, that there is inevitably another fear that comes along right behind it, right in its place, to tempt and to torment us. 
There are literally fears and phobias of everything today. There is a fear and there is a phobia for everything imaginable, for everything under the sun except for the one thing that we should fear. And that is God Himself. There's an absolute absence of the fear of God in this broken and sinful world. Jesus addresses this in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. He says, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were stepping on one another. He began saying to His disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will warn you, Whom to fear? Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear him. The reality in our world, as filled as it is with fear, is not that it could be worse it is that without Christ, it will be worse. What we don't need to say as believers is that you can take Jesus or leave Him, but it'll all be okay. It won't be okay, and it will actually get worse. And we are dishonest, brothers and sisters, if we do not go into the world with that message. It is not that, oh, things are going to work out okay. Things will be okay. Quit painting silver linings where Jesus draws a black curtain. Jesus says to this man who has been sick, there is something worse that can happen. Think about you. It's not physical illness it is not persecution believer it is none of those things there is something far worse that can happen apart from christ therefore fear him fear him because a lack of fearing god inevitably and always leads to a life without fear of sin and the consequences of sin It's not unloving to say that. It is the most loving thing to say that. Jesus is not cruel to this man. He is absolutely gracious to this man by giving him such a warning. So in John chapter 5, before us this morning, we have a case where for this man, in his understanding, in his way of looking at life, life has presented to him a worst case scenario. Again, Humanly speaking. And yet, because Jesus chooses to go and to interact with Him, He is presented with a more pressing reality 
A reality that he will be commanded by no one less than Jesus Christ himself to fear. To fear Christ, to fear sin, and to realize who Christ is and what he can do for him. I will tell you this as you look at this healing this morning. You may have read it because you've read it before and you read it quickly and you you move through and you say, Brian, you are such a downer. Somebody just got healed. Can't we all just be happy? How in the world is this a warning? Well, because this healing, unlike other healings, has a somber tone to it. It's not the joyful celebration of other healings like John chapter 9 with the man, the blind man who is healed. There's no rejoicing here, loved ones. There's only warning. That puts somewhat of a damper, doesn't it, on the prosperity gospel and the outer reaches of the charismatic movement that says, oh, all healing is good and all healing is supposed to be happy and raucous and create this ecstasy about us no not according to this healing this healing is granted rather that it might create a fear a fear of sin a fear of god and a turning then to christ because of that and so this morning i want you to look through this man's eyes this man who has been sick for now 38 years That's a long time. That's a long time to lay by a pool hoping that a superstition is true. Let's look at life through his eyes. There are two considerations that this man faces here in the text this morning. Number one, he has to consider the threat. There are several things in this man's life that appear to threaten him. Each becomes more serious, even fatal in its own way. I want you to notice, first of all, the perceived threat that he is dealing with. And there was a man laying there sick for 38 years. The first thing that confronts us in the text this morning is that there is a serious, lifelong illness that this man is battling. And so we, we quickly, in our minds, we, we just become absorbed up front with the illness that plagues this man. It's forefront in our mind, and perhaps that's because of our own fears. Nobody enjoys being sick. Certainly nobody enjoys, and I know, bless some of your hearts, you suffer chronic pain, chronic illness, chronic things that, that cannot be just solved overnight and our heart goes out to brothers and sisters who suffer those kinds of things and i don't make light of that at all it's natural we we feel for this man don't we and so our mind automatically goes to what we can identify with and yet it goes there in part because we too fear that it hits us hard because you say in in your own life what would it be like to not be able to move for 38 years? What would it be like to lay by a pool? <coughs> what would it be like to, to be someone who has no family, no friends who come around them to support them at such a time? What would that be like? That's a fearful thing. 
And so we identify with this man's perceived threat. This is the most important thing that could happen to him. This is the most critical thing. But there is some paralysis that, that causes him to not be able to move or to function normally. Look at verse 7. Look, look at what he says. He says, while I am coming there at the end of that verse, that tells us he could move, but he could not move well, whether he limped or whether he had no use of his legs at all and had to drag himself arm over arm. We're not told. Well, we are told this, he cannot move naturally or normally or quickly. And because of this, others cut in front of him and cause him to continue to, in his thinking, live in this diseased state and this is the greatest source of threat to this man in his immediate understanding until jesus comes along now jesus is omniscient jesus understands everything about this man's condition jesus knows everything about the way this man thinks jesus as god comes in to the scene, and he doesn't choose one of the other dozens or even maybe hundreds of ill people laying around that pool. He chooses this man to speak to. He doesn't open up and say, who would like to talk to me? You know, like, uh, like on Charlie Brown or on Peanuts, you know, they set up the little stand and hang out their shingle and says, now who would like to come and speak with me about your healing? No, Jesus initiates. Jesus goes to the man. Now notice what Scripture does. Scripture draws our attention not only to the illness, but the length of the illness. And so, in the context of the length of that illness, Jesus goes up and He asks what might sound to us like a silly question. Do you wish to get well? Well, duh. I've been laying here for 38 years. I've had someone drag me down here for 38 years trying to get into that pool. And for 38 years, it hasn't ever happened. Do I want to get well? Did the sun come up this morning? Yes! I want to be well. What kind of question is that? Seems to be a strange question, doesn't it? Maybe even insensitive. This man has no clue who Jesus is. Commentators, in the, the various commentators on John's Gospel, refer to this man as dull. There's a sense of dullness about him. Because every time we hear this man speaking or acting, it is confined to the limitations and the realities of his own perceptions. His own considerations. And he doesn't see Jesus for the same reason he says really dull things. And does really dull things. He cannot see that Jesus is the Christ. He's not like the nobleman who came, remember, from last Sunday? Or, I'm sorry, two Sundays ago. He's not like the nobleman who hears about Jesus and comes running to Jesus saying, I believe you're the only one who can heal my dying son. Would you do it? 
This man apparently has no such knowledge. So we want to maybe give him some consideration on our own part that, that it's hard to blame him completely, right? He hasn't heard of Jesus. He doesn't know anything about who this Jesus is. That's evidenced by the way in which he answers the Pharisees' question. Who did this? I don't know. Some guy. Some guy. How about the Lord of creation? How about the God who sustains everything? And so this man perpetually manifests an earthly in limited outlook response. Look at, his, look at his response to Jesus. Jesus says, do you wish to get well? Now the noble man, had he been laying there, would have said this. This is good news. I think he's going to do it. I think he's going to heal me. But notice what this man says. Uh, Sir, I just don't have anybody to put me in the water. If you, maybe, would put me in the water, I'd be healed. He's completely dull to the fact that all Jesus has to do is speak and he can be healed. Rather, he continues in this limited outlook and says, yeah, I need to get down to the water. Let me ask you a question. How's that water worked out for you for the last 38 years? Not very well, has it? You're still laying here, aren't you? Well, do you wish to get well? Yeah, I just can't get into the water, which brings up the second perceived threat to this man and that is the crowd notice what he says it's the crowd i've tried but while i am coming to this water that turns colors that supposedly and, and by the way is that not cruel to let him languish in in error that water's not going to heal anybody That water is a giant pool of placebo. It doesn't heal anything. And yet he's laid there for all these years believing that it could. And he believes his problem, one, is his own health. Number two, it's the people around him who won't help him in. Because the first one in wins. Everybody else is a loser. What do they say? Second place only means you're the first loser. He's been second place his whole life. For 38 years, the crowd is the problem. I just need to get into the water. If you could help me do that, it'd all be fine. Not what I'm talking about. Not what I'm talking about. There's a certain sadness, isn't there, that floods our thinking. We feel for the man's physical condition he is seriously ill ill we're not making fun of that or light of that we feel for this man because he is unable to help himself listen there ought to be some christian compassion for that we ought to feel for people who can't help themselves who have serious impairments in their life that's painful to watch isn't it I hope we feel some compassion for those in that state. This man has no helpers around him. Nobody likes him. Nobody cares about him. They're just going to let him lie, run over him. They get into the water first because their disease is not one of immobility. This man lives depending on a myth. Imagine his heartbreak once he gets into the water only to realize the water 
didn't do anything. It's not kind. It's not loving to allow people to live in the lies. I'm reminded of the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. Most of you know who she is. Paralyzed as a teenage girl, her parents took her to all types of faith healers and people who promised to make her well, even going to some of the biggest name faith healers in her day, Catherine Kuhlman and others. Only to have, before the healing started, only to have all the people in wheelchairs that they knew they couldn't dupe people into seeing them healed taken out just before the healing happened. And she recounts in her own testimony how discouraging and utterly demoralizing it is to live with false hope. It's not kind, not only to not help people like this man, but to allow him to live in a lie. That water will do nothing for you. I wonder how many of us find ourselves in that situation. Is there a lie that you're believing? Is there something that you're depending on? Is there something that you're hanging on to that has produced nothing and yet we continue to hang on to it as if it's the truth and it's not? And it only continues to torment us because we believe the lie rather than looking to the truth. What are you depending on for your spiritual healing? What are you depending on for your forgiveness? Now I want you to notice there's a second crowd of people. It's not only the ones who step over this man and beat him into the water, though he has to be a known entity, right? If you've laid somewhere for 38 years, you kind of become a fixture. It's like going into the store and you go in long enough, you get to know who the cashiers are and when they're not there, you go, I wonder where they are. This man is known. He has to be known. He's been there for a long time. And so, so there's the threat of those people, but there is the threat of another group of people who are a bigger threat than the ones who trample this man, and that is the Pharisees. You see, under Mishnah law, under oral tradition in Jesus' day, you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath, which they ultimately get upset about. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't even pick up your pallet and move it from one house to another. That was a violation of the law in their understanding. But what they could do, ironically, was carry a paralytic on the Sabbath. Did you hear what I said? They were allowed to carry a paralytic on the Sabbath. I have a question for you. Why then is this man still laying there? If the Pharisees are who they say they are, these spiritual men of God, why had they not picked him up? They don't. They keep him down. They are the ones who are cruelest of all. They allow him to continue to believe the lies through their false teaching. They allow him to languish physically because they will not lift a finger to help him even though that is one of the rare exceptions in their own law that they would permit. 
What a travesty. What hypocrites. What cruel individuals. True religion is to help people like that, right? But they ignore it altogether. In fact, they're just looking to condemn it rather than to help it. His only hope then in Jesus through that healing becomes one that they don't rejoice in. Rather, they try to silence it, don't they? Who did this to you? You mean you're not happy that I can walk? No, we just want to know who healed you on the Sabbath. That's not permissible. You're not going to rejoice with me? No way. Hand him over. And this is more than a perceived threat. This is a real threat to this man. Angry that there's been such activity on the Sabbath, the Pharisees turn on him. (coughs) Now the Sabbath, look, look at your Bibles again. The end of verse 9. It's rather emphatically placed. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. This becomes part and parcel to Jesus' ministry. Jesus has no problems cutting across the grain of man-made religion. Seven times at least. There's some debate that it could be higher. But at least seven times on the Sabbath day, Jesus heals. Jesus helps. Jesus feeds. He's cutting against all their religious notions and grain. Now that's no small thing given that they had idolized the Sabbath. They had turned the Sabbath into an idol. They were such strict Sabbatarians that they had made what God created for good, they had made it into an idol that crushed men rather than refreshed men. When God gave the law in Exodus and again in Deuteronomy that we were to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God is referring to your normal daily work. Doesn't mean you can't do anything. But it means a cessation from what is profane, not in an immoral sense, but profane or common. To, to stop from the common things and do something uncommon and that is to sit in the presence of God and to be with the people of God, and to worship God in a very concentrated and focused way. That's the heart of the Sabbath. And then to rest. To enjoy a day free from the entanglements of life. That's the heart of the Sabbath. We talk about the cruelty of the Pharisees and their their Mishnah, their oral tradition that became law by Jesus' day. And again, I would remind you, the Pharisees of Jesus' day are nothing like the Old Testament law that God actually gave. They added and added and added and added over 700 additional laws. But on the Sabbath, they had a particular fondness for making it excruciatingly difficult and painful for people. They added 39 categories beyond your daily work that you couldn't do 39 categories now how much can you put under a category anything you want to my apologies to any attorneys but you can twist and reword and 
repurpose words and all kinds of you give somebody 39 categories they'll find a way to nail you to the wall they have 39 categories of things that were prohibited on the sabbath god didn't say that you invented that and so using those categories they they find fault with this man when they see him walking down the street with his mat. He has not walked in 38 years, if ever. They're not rejoicing. They're saying, wait a minute. That is a violation of category 37.2 slash 5 subsection 4 blah, 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 blah. Who did this to you? Turn him in right now. Again, the irony is thick. This man could have been carried by one of them, and they didn't. And so they will come down upon him even more cruelly for the fact that he is walking and carrying his pallet. But, the, but, but their anger can be mitigated. Here, here's the real tragedy. Not only does this man not recognize Jesus, neither do they, and they know the book. They know the law. They know the prophecies. They should know Jesus, and yet they are angry with this man, and they're going to be angry with whoever it was that did this to this man, and yet their anger can be mitigated by betrayal. Look at verse 12. Who is the man that said to you, pick up your mat and walk? You turn him in and we'll be okay. You and us. You turn him in, you turn him over, it'll all be okay. Now previously, as we began to read this text, we're plagued with sadness that no one is there to help. We're plagued with compassion for this man who has no hope but what we really should be feeling is this a great sadness and sorrow that neither the man nor the pharisees see the real danger at hand it would be tragic for this man to die as a paralytic no question about it that would be so sad heartbreaking but what is even more sad and more heartbreaking is that this man who can't walk is actually running toward a cliff. With the Pharisees in tow chasing behind him, all headed for serious judgment and destruction. So what's the real threat? Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Yeah, I know. Thanks. You've become well. You walked to the temple. I sure did. From the pool to the temple. I'm here. Boy, that felt good. Jesus' words. Do not sin anymore. Do not sin anymore. Now, we might hope in our humanity that Jesus would high-five the guy, hug the guy, sit down and share a meal with the guy. 
celebrate with the man. But he doesn't. He uses a man who is now upright face to face with him. He uses the moment to warn the man. Don't sin anymore. Wait a minute. Is Jesus a legalist? No, Jesus is a realist. Jesus understands that the real threat to this man is his sin. And here is where we come into the story. This is every one of us. This is every single one of us. The Scripture warns us to fear God, to fear sin. Sin, friends, is the greatest threat to your well-being. It may be the single greatest threat to your eternal life, depending on where you are with Jesus Christ, whether He is your Savior or not. It could determine that you will spend eternity in judgment. But believer, even for us, sin is to be feared, to be avoided, because it directly assaults and arouses the righteous response of God's judgment. So, well, if I'm a believer, God doesn't judge me. If I'm a believer, there's no punishment. Yeah, there is, actually. Do you love your kids? Yes. Do you ever judge and punish your kids? You better believe it. Because I loved them. We're not talking about eternal judgment for the Christian. We're talking about temporal judgment, but it's still not pleasant, right? So should we fear sin? Absolutely. Even more so, should the lost fear sin? Yes, because that is eternal judgment. It's an affront to everything that God is. Sin is an affront to everything that God has done for us. Now let the weight of God's mercy break you. What all has God done for you? Then why do we sin? How much has God provided for us and taken care of us and demonstrated Himself to be such a caring God? Oh, so many ways we don't even see it. Then why be anxious? Why fear something else? Matthew 6, Jesus over and over for the cure for, for, for fear. Hey, don't, don't fear what you're going to eat. Don't fear what you're going to wear. Don't fear this. Don't fear that. Don't fear about your physical state. Why? Your heavenly Father will care for you. He does it for the birds of the air, for the lily of the field. He does it in such big and small ways, you're blind to it. But this one thing we should fear that is sin. Sin that detracts from God, from what He is, from what He has done. And that also means from what God hasn't done. Jeremiah says in the book of Lamentations, is by His mercies that we are not consumed. Do you realize what a mercy that is that we have not been consumed yet? Have you come to church every day that you have come to church and worshiped in absolute purity of heart? Purity of mind? Purity of action? And all of us have to raise our hands and say, well, I haven't. Then why didn't God consume us like Nadab and Abihu? 
Why has God not caused the ground to open up and swallow us like He did in the past? God's mercies are so great. God has restrained. And our sin is an affront to that. I don't care what you haven't done. I'm going to keep sinning. Jesus says, you better learn to fear sin. Paralyzed man, you may be walking now, but you still have a problem. And it ain't your legs, it's your heart. Don't sin any more. Genesis 4-7 If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, be warned. Sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. It is a hungry animal ready to consume you. Christian, do you fear sin? Perhaps you're an unbeliever here this morning. Do you fear sin? Because there is something so much worse than anything you can possibly imagine. It's not paralysis of leg. It's not illness of the body. It is the soul which can be cast into hell. How can we not fear that? So Jesus graciously warns the man, be warned. Don't sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now, we have to confess this, brothers and sisters. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have not found forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You've never called upon Him to save you from the sin that you have committed that so violates Him and arouses His righteous anger. Rightly so. We all need to be reminded of what Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else, and it is desperately sick. Who can even understand it? I can't even understand my own heart. And neither can you. That's how wicked we are. goes on in verse 10, I, the Lord, however, search the heart. We don't have the tools to search the heart, but God does, and He is actively searching our hearts. And I test the mind, He said, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And so Jesus is not being cruel. Jesus is presenting this man with the reality. I know your heart. How many of you have heard that phrase before? You know, God just knows my heart. And you say that like that's good? That's bad news. That's bad news, especially apart from Christ. That excuse is out the window and there's this sober reality that remains, isn't there? Jesus says, listen, man. See to it that you do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now look at verse 15. (laughs) So the man goes away. He goes away to the Pharisees. Now remember, this is the man who even on the most strict of days, the Sabbath day, could have been picked up and carried to a place of safety, a place of health, a place of provision for him by the Pharisees. Yet for 38 years, they've left him lying there. And where do his little healed legs now go? To the very people who had not cared 
an iota for him. In fact, made it worse for him. He runs to them. How different that is, isn't it, from Mark chapter 2? Remember, I said this is not like the other healings in the New Testament. This is a somber healing. One, to create fear in this man so that he would turn from his sin a far greater threat than his paralysis. But in Mark chapter 2, we find the healing of another paralytic man, but this time Jesus starts in the heart, forgives his sin, and then works his way out to the body. And there's great rejoicing there. And that man confesses. He is, in fact, he has come to Jesus in Mark chapter 2 because he believes. Faith brought him to Jesus. Jesus deals with his truth threat, that of his sin. Jesus then heals the man as proof that he has forgiven him internally to, to prove to not only this man but to the Pharisees. And yet here this man comes to Jesus. He has no faith. Jesus heals the man of his physical ailment, but has not yet touched the man's heart. So that Jesus now has the platform to stand up and starkly and strongly warn this man about his bigger problem, and that is his sin. This becomes the platform by which Jesus can speak truth to this man. Now, is this man ever forgiven? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we know in this particular chapter, he is not. He doesn't become a follower of Jesus. Rather, he runs to the Pharisees. Jesus has his prophet mantle on here. He is a strong speaker. He looks at the man with that prophetic voice and says, Do not sin anymore. If you do, something worse will happen. We need to understand that what Jesus meant by that is that there is punishment for sin. So the question now is this. What is the relation of sin to this man and his disease? How do we understand in sin in this passage? Well, we can look at it one of two ways. We could say that when Jesus warns this man not to sin anymore, that Jesus is just simply warning him like we would our children there's going to be consequences if you sin that's a given anybody can figure that out it's a general warning of sorts but the second way to look at this and i believe the correct way to look at this presents a weightier consideration for us there's more here than to digest and to to chew on this man's sin is the actual cause of his illness. Whoa! Brian, did you just say this man sinned and that's the reason he's sick? Uh-huh. It appears to be the case. Modern Christianity that loves to look at God as only one who hands out favors and kindnesses says surely God would never inflict sickness upon anyone or do anything to anyone because they sinned. To which I would respond this way. Consider sin lightly at your own risk. Think lightly of sin to your own peril. Yeah, but God doesn't do those kind of things. How could God cause people to suffer? 
Go ask Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 if God causes people who sin to suffer. God straight up killed them. Are you trying to scare us, Brian? I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to tell you the truth. It happens. To think lightly of sin, to blatantly sin, to throw it in God's face. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and they dropped dead. It's a reality. Paul, in giving the instruction to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, makes it very clear that there were some who abused the Lord's table and the observance of communion with sin, known sin in their hearts. And because they did that, and they mock thus the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, they slept, which is New Testament speak for have died. Is sin serious? Can sin be the cause of illness and death? 1 John chapter 5 tells us in verses 16 and 17 that there is a sin which leads to death. Young people, if you're paying attention this morning, and I hope you are, don't ever take sin lightly. God doesn't. And neither should you. There is a sobriety about sin that must be considered that is why jesus issues such a stark warning to this man he's like look i've healed you don't sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you the implication is you sinned you there is something in your life that has transpired that led to you being the way you were so don't go and repeat the mistake or else it'll be worse now is that to say that every time somebody is hurt or ill, it's because of sin. No. But it's also not outside the realm of possibility either. In John chapter 9, the healing of the blind man. They, they come and they ask the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because surely if he's blind, somebody had to sin. And Jesus says, no, that's not always the case, right? He says in verse 3 of John 9, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so, so that the work of God might be displayed in him. There's no sin. But that doesn't mean that sin is always without immediate consequence. And so Jesus says to this man, listen, you must learn to fear what must be feared. Quit fearing your illness. Quit fearing the crowd that tramples you. Quit fearing the Pharisees. Fear Him who after he is killed has the power to cast both soul and body into hell. Luke chapter 12. So don't sin. Quit sinning. Jesus warns him that to do so may have consequences far worse than 38 years lying beside a pool. Hoping for a superstitious healing to happen. We need to realize as well that there is a punisher of sin. A punisher of sin. And that is Jesus Himself. Luke chapter 12. Again, Jesus says, fear me. Fear me. I am the one who possesses the power that if you reject and continue in sin has the authority to cast you into hell. 
In Luke chapter 13, one chapter later, Jesus says this, beginning in verse 1, Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Hey, that's for all of us. Did you hear what Jesus said? You think they're worse than you? Oh, I can promise you they're not. We're all sinners. We are all rebels against God. He goes on in verse 3, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That is sobering. But it is graciously sobering to get our attention, to get this man's attention so that he would turn from the consideration of his circumstances and the perceived threats to consider Jesus. To consider the one who could forgive and heal and save. He needs a clear view of the Savior He needs to consider his relationship to the Savior. He needs to acknowledge the power of the Savior. This man has has so long waited for someone to lower him down. Jesus doesn't lower him down. Jesus lifts him up. What the man thought was the key to his healing, Jesus blows that paradigm and says, you don't need water. I don't need a myth. I will heal you by the power of my word and instantaneously so. Get up and walk. The the, the Greek is actually more staccato and sharp and authoritative than we get in our English. It would sound like up with your mat and away with you. Get up and go, man. Why are you still laying here? Go. Why? Because Jesus has power. His very words are power. The whole world exists because God spoke. The whole world continues to exist because God sustains. We need to tell the world that's so worried about us destroying the environment. No, you're not doing anything. He holds it in His hand. Moment by moment. Day by day. We'll get into this next week. But this kind of violates the Pharisees' understanding of God's relationship to the Sabbath. Oh, but God rested on the seventh day. Therefore, God does nothing on the Sabbath. Uh, Yeah, He does, actually. He has to keep the world running. He keeps our hearts beating. Yes, even on the Sabbath. And for that, we're all grateful. Jesus says, you've got to understand my power. Get up, be gone with you. Walk. How many times have you heard people say something like this? Man, I just wish God would speak to me. I just wish God would tell me. Lord, why aren't you speaking to me? That's the wrong question. The right question is, 
at what point am I not listening? At what point am I not seeing? Where are my blind spots? Lord, the fault is not in you. The fault is in me. Mark Twain that said, it's not the parts of the Bible I understand that I don't understand that bothers me. It's the parts that I do. Lord, where am I just rebellious? Where am I just not listening? Where am I not seeing? It's not that your word and your power is insufficient. It's in me. And so here in a very real way in Jesus' words to this man, he sets the platform and the stage for what's to come at the end of the chapter in verses 28 and 29. He says this, Do not marvel at this, Again, all in the same context of what we're dealing with here. Don't marvel at this. I mean, so what? I I told a man to get up and walk. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. And will come forth. And those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. And those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of the judgment. Hey, guys, it is in my word. And this man is just small potatoes. You haven't seen anything yet. Wait until I start speaking into tombs and dead men start walking out. Then you'll know I have power. Then you'll understand what you really should be thinking upon and considering. But the same voice that has the power to call death or life out of death is the same voice that has the power to judge if he can create he can destroy if he can call forth life he can execute the sentence of death it's all in his hands jesus says to the man listen your sin is a way bigger problem than your likes you really need to consider Hear Him. Hear Him. You're here this morning. I'm here this morning. Because both of us have experienced great mercy. You know what mercy is technically defined? It's not getting what you do deserve. We're here this morning Every single one of us. Because we have not received what we deserve. Christ. If you have trusted Jesus Christ. Christ received what you deserved. On a cross. Absorbing the wrath of all of your violations of Jesus' command to go and sin no more. Jesus absorbed every one of those for you. And you will never face the wrath of the Father because of this. But have you considered that mercy? Are you considering it right now? Or are you saying, you know, I'm, I'm really a pretty good person. I really have done a lot of good things in my life. I have it all together. Things are working well for me because I, in my own strength, I, I just don't sin. I, I'm just, I'm doing good things. In whose eyes? Who's judged you that doesn't also have sin? 
that has said, yeah, you know, you're pretty good. Because the only one who doesn't have sin, who can speak with clarity, who can speak with power, has said this about all of us. You are lost and dead in your sins and you need me. Consider him. As we close this chapter, we find human nature acting as only human nature can act. Look at verse 15 again. The man went away. The man goes away. On legs, Jesus is healed. Jesus has not judged him. Not yet. In fact, Jesus has temporarily saved him. And he runs to the Pharisees. He runs to men who love their sin. Clothed in religious garb, yes, but love their sin. He runs to men who never lifted a finger to save him when they could have. And these men have judged him already. Go back. Who said to you, pick up your bat and walk? They've already judged this man. Jesus hasn't judged him yet. They have judged him. They've not attempted at all to save him. Jesus has not saved him, I mean, not judged him, and yet has temporarily rescued this man from misery and suffering. And yet, who does he run to? Not Jesus. Human nature doesn't run to Jesus. Human nature runs to sin. And they offer him the plea deal. Who is the man? Tell us who the man is, and you can go. We'll judge him instead. This man runs to the Pharisees. Who would you side with? Who have you sided with? A running to Jesus, acknowledging who he, is, who he is and what He has done for you? Or more sin? Because you've experienced mercy. Well, you know, God loves to forgive. Let me give Him more sin to forgive. It's crazy to think there's actually people who write that kind of stuff. Sinner, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Acknowledge who He is like the nobleman did just a few verses earlier. Run to Jesus. Let Him bear your burden of sin. Let Him take the punishment for your sin. Don't be like this man running back to sin and those who perpetuate sin and those who love it. Run to Jesus. Here we find the horrible, twisted nature of sin and what it does to our thinking, don't we? Runs to the Pharisees? What in the world? Doesn't he know how they've treated him before? Doesn't he know they have no power? Doesn't he know they can't speak life into death 
and, and life spring forth in withered legs or, or full tombs? Don't they? He runs to sin and he runs to death. The twisted nature of sin. The illogical nature of sin. And here stands Jesus. A Savior. Ready to save. Ready to, to take care of the most serious problem this man faces. And yet he does not choose to heed Jesus' warning. He runs to sin. Because of that will suffer far worse. Death here. Death eternally. God give us all the right type of fear. To fear Him. So that in fearing Him we come to an honest assessment and consideration of sin and its only remedy in Jesus Christ. Jesus alone can save from that. Let's run to Jesus. Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your work that is so perfectly reflected here, may we hear Your voice. It's evident in creation all around us, according to Romans 1, that there is a Creator, that the Creator has spoken. Lord Jesus, that You are that Creator. You bring everything out of nothing. You bring life out of death. And our greatest sin is running from You. Turning away from You. In rebellion. And to anything and everything else. Lord Jesus, if there is one here this morning who has never turned to You as this man should have, they are still running to the Pharisees as it were. May they be stopped in their tracks this morning to consider the seriousness of sin and turn to You. Knowing that in you as loving kindness is mercy and compassion and forgiveness and healing from the real threat of sin. Save them. Bring them to Jesus. Convince them that you lived the perfect life they were called to but didn't. That you died in their place absorbing all of God's wrath which they couldn't. So that now you live for them and by you they will forever live. Faultless before the eyes of your Father who sees only now when they place their faith in you, sees only you, Lord Jesus, standing in their place as though it were them. So convince us of these things, Holy Spirit, all of us, for those who have trusted Christ, may we be eternally grateful and may we desire to follow jesus command to avoid sin not because we can lose our salvation not because we can earn any more favor with the father we can't do either of those things but so that we will live a life of joy and fullness with you so may we all walk to jesus leaving our sin behind. We ask all of this so that You would be glorified, Lord Jesus, because You're worthy to be glorified. And You only.
We pray this in your precious name. Amen.